ready to op- turn off the fireplace and open my windows and have some fresh air coming in. And just, it's the little things. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> well, I'm okay. excited for this chapter. I you figured you're recording already, right? Yeah, I hit record. Yeah, yeah. Yep, just was going to let you know. I was I was just riffing while you were getting your bearings and things. I am really excited for this chapter because you are really excited for this chapter. You were so excited before that you read it in advance. So <laughs> That's right, I, I jumped the gun. Yes. I am really excited for you and also for me for this chapter. Awesome. Yeah, this was my favorite so far. Yeah. Dances with Foes, How to Win Debates and Influence People. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not what you think, just like everything else in this book, right? It's a little bit counterintuitive. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Did you feel going into this chapter, did you, would you have rated yourself as a fairly good negotiator, discusser, debater, or not? Oh, yeah. So some of those things, yes. In the past, negotiator, no, in the sense that I got a little too hung up. I think I mentioned this to you before, but a little too hung up on what the other person wants. I was very much like an anxious people pleaser type in negotiations. And what that ultimately ended up doing was running the risk of putting our people in contractually obligated situations that are not in their best interest, or it hurts our firm's ability to to meet numbers or whatever. And it really is just like a mindset shift on some of that where it's like, no, you actually have really valuable resources that are worth what people are paying for them and more. And it's okay to aspire to deliver more value than you get paid for, but you should get sort of like, there's nothing wrong with asking for what you deserve. And so once I made that mindset shift, like the skills required clicked as well, but it was more sort of that perspective or rewiring. But as far as debating arguing, fighting goes, I would say, yeah, in the past, I've been pretty good about that or pretty good at that. But it has a bit of a double-edged sword too because I've gotten feedback that said, you're, it's not easy to be wrong around you and that's not great for a team. And so I would say I've had a bit of a mixed bag, but you know, my style is definitely energetic, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. It does. I'm thinking about working outside of work. Like I li- I liked and also cringed at the expression he used. I don't remember if it was this chapter or before the expression logic bully. Like yes. Some, <laughs> yeah. I chuckled and then cringed because I, I never, uh, I, I don't think of myself as a bully. My, it's not my style. I'm not, I'm usually much more accommodating or kind of unassuming than that, which does help with hard conversations. But the logic part, I, I, I took that. <laughs> I had to take that one to heart. Yes, it is possible for me to come fully armed with all of my data and all of my reasons and then not give in on them because they're all yeah. logically correct. Which is, a, which is like a form of conflict avoidance, actually. Like I just kind of heard someone talk about that the other day. It's like, how do people deal with con- conflict? There's the avoidance, there's the anger. Those two make sense. Then there's like the healthy one where everyone seems heard and understood. And then there's like a, a logic-based one where you bring so much reason to the situation that it doesn't really allow for the human side of it. And so that is interesting, though, even though you can be factually right. Well, and, you know, th- I guess it's true, too. You can you cannot be breaking the law and still be a jerk to somebody. You know, those kind of things. So 
it is interesting how you take something that's rational and makes perfect sense on the surface, and then there's mm-hmm. it has some impacts below the surface. Yeah, yeah. I generally have pretty high EQ. Like I'm good at reading a room and reading when someone's not tracking or fully rejecting or accepting. It seems like it's the it's the recalibration combination that he had in here that I thought was so in, so good around not say say reading a room and then not not responding with more data from my plethora of data that I've prepared because because I'm trying a different way to win a heart and mind, right? Versus stopping and asking a question, asking another question, asking another question. It's just not the most intuitive thing, I guess. Yeah. Um, well, and, and it does, the book recommends against that because you water down your best arguments. Mm-hmm. And yes. the beautiful advice, which was like, if if you give, if you have three really good points, but you give 10, mm-hmm. and in the ninth or 10th most important one that was maybe even an offhand comment, your counterpart can pick at that one, it topples the whole house of cards. It like invest. And therefore invalidates the other nine or 10, which is not logical, right? That makes no sense. But in our minds, that's how it it works. And so you actually do yourself like a huge disservice if you don't take a little bit of time to prepare those top two or three. And mm-hmm. So it really was, for me, it, it was a great reminder of the, the quality over quantity in the conversation. And also the willingness to, or like the calmness to pause and ask questions like that can, that for, I don't know why that is a, it's a, it takes a bit of courage, I think to say, oh yeah. Oh, okay. So you see no merit in this idea. Okay. Oh, well tell me what merit you do see. And so kind of drawing the other person in, I I have done it. It does work, but it's not intuitive. And I guess that's what, (laughs) That's that's what what is so cool about this whole chapter and even the concept of a dance versus that was really good. Yeah. I mean, any other, you know, he uses karate (laughs) as an example, like out maneuvering and dance is a really good one. Trying to figure out if you're even, if you've even both choreographed to the same dance (laughs) yeah, and how to make your steps work. Just full of wisdom, this chapter. That's right. And that, that trying too hard to lead versus adapting to your counterpart's moves. And actually, now that you mentioned it, I had intended to go to YouTube and look at competitive dance fails or something where is I'm I'm sure there's videos out there somewhere where someone's recording two dancers that are not in sync. And then maybe you could watch the, you know, whatever, I, I don't know what the dance competitions are, but you know, 2021 dance competition, ballroom dance competition champions, and then just watch their, like the gold medal winning one. And that might give sort of an anchor in your head around, this is how you look to to third-party observers. When you are in a negotiation, when you're in a debate, when you're in a discussion that's not free-flowing and you're trying to win and you're trying to wear the other person out and you feel like it's a tug of war or a war, you look awkward, I think to people around you. But if you're in sync and their moves seem choreographed and you're you're building off of each other to observers, 
you probably look a lot more like the the couple that won the the gold medal. Or I don't know if there are medals. The championship, Maybe, first place, first I don't prize. know, awards, I <laughs> yeah, some applause. money, yeah. I don't, a dance contract. <laughs> I, clearly yeah. neither one of us pay that much attention to, to professional dance. Maybe we should. Well, it is funny, though, because you, you saw this on the Olympics, too, where you figure skating or snowboarding or whatever, where the people watching have such a nuance. Oh, the way, I guess it's the height, and no one's ever pulled that move off, and it looks to me like every other move. But, you know, as leaders, when we're in debates or conversations or we're in kind of like our arena, you know, we, we can very quickly spot or at least feel the the difference, right, mm-hmm. in a quality maneuver, mm-hmm. conversational maneuver mm-hmm. versus a, a poor one. And when I'm able to be part of a conversation, whether it's part of a sales team or watching, watching I don't know, maybe participating in a tense conversation with a boyfriend or whatever. I I find I really admire people who are good at this. I'm kind of amazed at them. And I think, yes, I want to be, I want to remember those, those specific techniques. I also find that if I know the person well, it is easier. It's just easier, kind of better, more authentic, maybe, conversation. I don't know if that's true for everyone. That makes it all, you know, those initial conversations on, say, like for on a contract, for instance, makes those a little more difficult because, at least for my style, I don't know the person as well. I don't know. I've been been trying trying to create some of my own correlations with my own strengths and weaknesses so that I can apply this more effectively. Yeah, and, and the, the dance analogy is interesting. I, I always thought of it like tennis. You're sort of like feeding the ball over and you need you need someone to hit it back for the game to be any fun. I think it's probably because I know more about sports, but I, I think the dance tie-in is a little bit no, more nuanced and, and probably appropriate because it talks about negotiators, like really expert negotiators. And there's the piece about agreeing with someone else's argument is disarming. And I think finding points of agreement are really solid. It talks about steel manning arguments, like you should be able to present the other side's argument as good or better than they can, right? To where they're like, yes, that's exactly what I mean. And if you can't tell, if you can't get someone to say, yes, what you said is exactly how I feel, then you're, you can't make any progress because you're, you're dancing two different sets of moves. But I also like the idea that really expert negotiators, and this is just, in my mind, a proxy for any conversation, it says they map out sort of these potential moves that could be made. So you kind of have a few different directions, a loose idea of where you might take the conversation, and those can be front of mind as the details emerge. And so I thought those two things were like a really kind of sophisticated way to, to look at this is very interesting. Very, very interesting. And we've referenced before, not in relation to this book, but on our podcast, the book Never Split the Difference. That is one one of my all-time favorite kind of business and life books. And I could reread yep, it over and over and over again. And I, I, what I wanted to do and didn't get the time to do was to go back and compare and contrast a little bit. Admittedly, that's an entire book on negotiation, and this is one chapter. But I wanted to, because I I felt like there were some key agreements and where I wasn't completely confident, hence the, the research I'd still like to do, 
for my own satisfaction, if nothing else, is the is this this idea of questioning and common ground. Because there is a point in Never Split the Difference where Christopher Voss is the author, yes. Christopher Voss, he um he posits that you shouldn't you shouldn't give too much. You actually should question, but you should hold a line and not not leave room for negotiation in the way we think of it, more in like a corporate structure. I, yeah, there's like the things you can't move on. Mm-hmm. And then there's this whole world of flexibility. Mm-hmm. And so it's really around, yeah, the downward inflecting tone and, oh, hey, we can't, like, he, he said that when he was doing hostage negotiations. My name's Chris, you're talking to me now. There's no, mm-hmm. you're talking to me? You know, there's no, like, question, like, you know, we can't, we can't budge on the price or mm-hmm. this one area element of the contract is like, you could, so you're sort of signaling this is, well, I can't move from here, mm-hmm. but all this other stuff is, is on the table. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Be interesting to go back and, and do a little more comparison, I think just for my, for myself on that. You know, it's funny because you, you we're talking about this and that all of the framing, like the setting of these, this advice and the conversations are, you're in the debate, you're in the room, you're on the battlefield, you're having the discussion, you're on the dance floor, whatever. One example Chris Voss uses, though, is so he's renting a place right now. He's like, every time I'm on the back patio overlooking this wooded area drinking coffee, I snap a picture and I send it to my landlord and say, man, this is, this is so great. This house is amazing. I love the view. It really brings me to my Zen place. And he's always, I'm so happy to be here. I love that, you know, you've provided a, a really great space that meets all my needs. So that guy hasn't even asked me for a rent increase in four years in the middle of one of the biggest housing booms the world has ever seen. And so I think there's this sort of, if you take Chris Voss's mentality of great negotiation is great collaboration, it's great relationship building. It's not necessarily like the win-loss, like you you invest all this time and energy in helping the other person feel good and giving them everything that you can that's that that's free for you to give or easy for you to give. And then when it comes down to the stuff that you like you really care about, which usually is like price and terms and even implementation, things like that, you're much more likely to get it because you've just been like giving all this other stuff. So it's a really again counterintuitive. Like all this stuff is not how we behave by default. You have to sort of rewire a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I liked that example too. I don't, that's, that doesn't feel counterintuitive to me though. I guess when I, when I connect, what is counterintuitive for me personally is connecting the pieces of negotiation and relationship building. Relationship building is more natural, but connecting those pieces as one supporting the other or paving a way for the other is, is not as intuitive for me. Maybe that's what I what I meant but wasn't able to articulate when I was saying earlier about for me personally, the the how I how much I know someone makes that negotiation easier and the transparency of it. So I've had clients in my career that have been my client for 10 plus years. And yes, we are constantly negotiating through different pieces, whether it's growth or rate restructure or every so many years rate increases or whatever. And that conversation 
with the with the solidifying of the relationship and sometimes friendship, the conversation overall gets easier. I I've never really dissected that. I wonder if some of it is in relation to kind of a willingness to tell them what I can and can't compromise on and you know lay everything else on yeah. the table or in this because the relationship has already been built. Just, yeah. Just some reflection. <laughs> yeah, and, and I like these too because the advice here, the advice on never split the difference, even if you're a selfish jerk and you engage in these behaviors, they're like good for everybody. You can, you can, it helps you get what you want, but it also is not so cutthroat that it gets you what you want at the expense of others. So I like when I can find things, patterns and behaviors that I can engage in that benefit everyone, even if one party is selfish, because sometimes that's me. And a lot of times you don't know it mm-hmm. in the moment. And so I, I like that kind of zone. It seems pretty cool when, like, even if you wield these for your own gain, it's like everybody still wins. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Really, 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 really thought-provoking. I liked, yeah, he also shared an example of kind of putting his own foot in his mouth and doing, engaging in a a consulting gig around retention, which could not be more timely than it is right right now, where the group that he was consulting with, the group of executives, their inclination was to focus on solving a retention problem by giving increases. And All the data he shared with them was not able to persuade them that that was not the right approach. So then he resulted to almost name-calling, which I thought was very funny. (laughs) Very good of him to admit. But but, um, how many times have we fallen into something that simple of really, truly not hearing the data that's available to us and not hearing what people are saying and what they're not saying, which is something my former boss tried to to beat into my head at a very early age in my career <laughs> what people are not saying. Um, yeah. Very interesting concept of being kind of fixated on our version of truth. And in this case, raises will make people stay. And we know that that's not true, especially now. We know that's not true. Yep. Yeah. I like how it Talks about avoiding the attack defense spirals, you know, as you, and it went back to the negotiation thing, but also the example that you just outlined, which is you sort of get into this mode of someone's not bought into what you're saying, doesn't immediately agree, has a question, gets defensive about it themselves, and then you go on the attack, and then that makes them defensive, and then go on the attack, and it just spirals, spirals down. And then you, you touched on this earlier. I think it, it does warrant some more discussion around just, the power of asking questions and being inquisitive. And, you know, I think the number of questions expert negotiators ask were higher. Mm-hmm. The guy Harish, that was an expert debater. He he poses more questions for you to compl- contemplate based on the, the research that the person most likely to change your mind is you. Mm-hmm. So a, a declarative statement isn't, it's just going to make people dig in more. And that that's an issue that I have. I'm very good at declarative statements, less good at questions. I I am as well. I am as well. 
I think there's numerous reasons for that and probably different reasons for both of us in terms of upbringing and and corporate training and life experiences. But yes, 100%. I thought there was an interesting connection or correlation between the, in this, this little graph in the book where he's showing the differences between an average negotiator and a skilled negotiator on those four, those four different areas, common ground, number of reasons given, defend attack spirals and questions. To me, I did think there was a connection between the common ground approach and the questioning, probably back and forth, because I can imagine that one who was intending to be quite skilled at the art of negotiation would be willing to to come with an approach for common ground and then then continually question to find more common ground. So just for listeners, what the graph shows is that it's just exponentially larger um, the amount of common ground that a skilled negotiator would go for and the, the high number of questions a skilled negotiator would ask as compared to an average negotiator on both categories. Average negotiators undervaluing common ground and then asking fewer questions. I, I can't help but see those two as related. Whereas the, the other two are great data, but they stand alone more, I think. Yeah, even the number of reasons, it's like a good thing to think about. But even as you're, you might give reasons as questions when you're trying to find common ground, it does seem to me that that's less impactful than the questioning and the common ground. Mm. Which I'd be interested to know because it does seem to me that even if you're on two completely polar opposite ends of a situation, you probably actually want the same thing. Like your values are probably more aligned than not. You just your opinions or ideas around how to implement or what it's going to take to get that eventual outcome differs, right? So mm-hmm. it's there's more to it than just the the facts and reasons. Anyway, it's like some of the the why behind what you're trying to do. Like getting straight on that too could help as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you'd have to take the time in the discussion to flesh that out because you you might find that there were a high percentage of commonalities in value, but you might also find some key differences. I mean, I I think I'm trying to think of an example where this polarity exists in kind of maybe normal conversations we might have, say at work. I think perhaps I'll just, I'll pose a couple. One might be, let's say you worked at a company, which thank goodness we don't, but you worked at a company where leadership was conflicted on a a growth a financial growth agenda over a employee value agenda which isn't always stated quite so bluntly but you can tell by a company's actions where they're going like where do they actually put their money where do they what do conversations circle around what compromises are made time and time again I think that that would be one where there is there's a, a high degree of common common ground for a for a time, and then at some point there ha, there is a, a there's a place of no no negotiation if the executive team is divided or 
you as a leader don't agree and you're part of that executive team that's going one way and you're valuing something else. I think that that would be perhaps another is, is one that we maybe encounter more on a day-to-day basis with with client teams, which would be around how does one, how, what, how do you afford quality? Can quality just as easily be done in many different, be executed in many different fashions? How do you balance the cost value of offshoring everything to offshoring some things? I think there's a, there's a, a place where a value system, the value system differs that does make it really hard to go forward without both parties being willing to compromise. Yeah, definitely. And I do think there's the, the time on the next piece. And, and I heard this, I didn't actually know it was Adam Grant who said it before. I, I think Jeff Atwood, who was like a say, tech famous programming blogger, like when I was coming up as a software developer, he helped create Stack Overflow. So he's one of the, sort of the founders of the question and answer site. Anyway, he had this thing about strong opinions weekly held. And that had always resonated with me because, you know, I, I feel like I can change my mind pretty readily when presented with new facts and information. And it turns out that, and I think Adam, Adam Grant either advocated for that in the past or that he's something that he coined in a, in a prior book, said, oh, I've changed my, oh, he, I argued in my book Originals that if we were to fight groupthink, it helps to have strong opinions weekly held. And he's changed his mind since then. He said, if you hold an opinion weekly, expressing it strongly can backfire, but communicating your opinions with some uncertainty signals a level of confident humility, which is like right at that sweet spot. It's very kind of interesting space to be. It invites curiosity. It leads to nuanced discussion. And and he said, and this is crazy, like research shows that even in courtrooms, expert witnesses are more credible to jurors when they express moderate confidence rather than high or low confidence. That, to me, that's just bonkers. You would think in, in any place, if there was one place where this worked, it would be expert witness in a courtroom. That's why they're there. And it turns out that it's not even the case in a courtroom. So I do like the idea of, I haven't fully formulated this thought, or I'm sure I'm missing something, but what about this? Or this just popped into my head. You know, I kind of, before you make a statement, couching it a little bit with, what could be wrong with it, which invites the back and forth versus making a declarative statement. And then, you know, especially if you're high detail, mm-hmm. you may immediately sort of pick at it and then, then it starts the attack defense spiral all over again. Yeah. I I liked that part as well because that's always, that had resonated with me before in the past. I certainly didn't pick it up from his other book, but it's a concept that I'd heard, Strong Opinions Weekly Held. And that's Gosh, that's so interesting. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's says, counterintuitive in every way. I feel like I is, need yeah. to need to study this chapter some more and with a few more anecdotes and then also discuss it with my therapist because <laughs> <laughs> it filters into life in so many yeah. ways, you know. I can just I feel like I can see it in like family interactions, you know, with adult children, adult parents and which is most of our situations and and significant other, and then also with colleagues and also with clients. And this is, this is really so much, so much to, un, to unpack here. Yeah. He says an informed audience is going to spot the holes in your case anyway. So you might as well get credit for having the humility to look for them, <laughs> the foresight to spot them, and the integrity to acknowledge them. Yeah. So good. 
Yeah, that makes sense. But I, I love the idea of inviting your counterpart to partner with you and also think for themselves, right? Like, I really, I really that sort of when you don't approach an argument as a war, but you come back to the dance analogy, you can, you can have this sort of development, joint development of progress forward because the other person most definitely knows stuff you don't know. And so if you shut that off, you're, you're not getting the full value of, of the situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he does, so I, he does give an out of saying yeah, at some point, knowing when, but, you know, asking someone, what could I tell you that would change your mind? And if the answer is nothing, then the answer is nothing. And you, yeah. you've come to that, you know, that kind of point of no return, but by and large, there's a lot of space to have an interesting conversation. It's, it's how can we improve the way we go about it? Yeah, that was a great point, too. It's like, what information would you need to see to convince you? You know, it's sort of asking, like, what what can I show you? What can I provide to you that can get to the heart of the matter really quickly? Because, again, like, I think, you know, we're not talking about this 20% space or less that is the non-negotiable, you know, you would be making a bad deal or violating your integrity or whatever. Like, it's not really talking about that space. It's this ocean of flexibility though that you have on the stuff that just doesn't matter and maybe we're digging in because we're you know afraid or angry at the other person or whatever there's a whole Mm -hmm. space here that can is is where the dancing you know takes place yeah yeah this was a good one yeah i guess even dancing has (laughs) rules though you know what i mean (laughs) like you can't step on your partner's toes and you know those kind of things so yep yeah yeah great chapter this is my favorite by far i think i think mine too and most, by far the most thought-provoking and challenging. So more to come. Good stuff. Yeah, definitely. What's next for us? Well, I guess we'll go chapter six. There are a couple, we just had the leadership offsite in Dallas. Mm-hmm. I wanted to kind of chat with you about, and there were a couple of ideas I maybe had mm. around, especially future of work and some leadership development stuff. So maybe we can work those yes. into future episodes. Yes, absolutely. I yeah. love that. I, actually, maybe I'll I'll tease one up for you and you can kind of react to it live and then that way it's in the transcript so I get credit for saying it mm-hmm. even if it's a bad idea. <laughs> but I had this sort of thought where you know we're talking about requiring everyone to come back to live within 100 miles of our off, of, of of an office by October. Mm-hmm. And so there's definitely sort of a line in the sand around the physicality of needing to show up for work, where in the past it's, it's roughly not been an issue. So we're going to have to figure some things out this year. And it occurred to me, like, if you're talking about hybrid work or you're starting the discussion with, like, how many days per week are you coming in, to me, that's going to very quickly get outdated. That's a sort of reductionist way of thinking mm-hmm. that we will look back on in three, five, ten years and kind of laugh at the idea of, oh, I can't believe we were bickering over one day versus two days in the office a week. It doesn't even work that way. Mm-hmm. Hmm. You know, just like we don't treat knowledge workers like they work on a factory floor and are cogs in a machine that can be easily replaced and measured productivity by widgets created. Like, it's not linear in that way. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of look at people who act that way today and kind of laugh and say, what a dated way to think about leadership and management. I think if we're talking about hybrid work, we're going to look back three years from now and say, that's really dated, silly way to look at things. 
you would recommend you're recommending more of a principle based discussion or concept highly flexible team lifestyle experience discussion like it it really just matters what like the fundamental building block of an organization is is the individual next above that is the team so you can't give complete sort of agency to a single person without considering the team that doesn't make sense because you're all playing like you're all in the field yeah. at the same time like you kind of need to be knowing what the plays are and stuff but you can't also dictate things at the organizational level if your organization is made up of two teams or more it's just th- this isn't going to work mm-hmm. and so to me it's like that the fundamental building block here is is the team and that opens up a whole litany of issues because now you're treating people you're treating teams unequally even though you may be treating them fairly and different teams have different needs mm-hmm. based on what you're expecting from them you know if you're a scientific team that has to go somewhere and collect samples from the ground mm-hmm. you got to show up to that right like there's there's some kind of physical nature if there's a very expensive piece of lab equipment you know if you're a if you're doing customer research as part of a software development team mm-hmm. If you're in the net new, like sort of greenfield development versus, you know, legacy maintenance type application, there's all sorts of different configurations. And so dictating those at the at the organizational level, I think doesn't make sense. So building very broad guidelines, because we also have people, I just found out about this too, where, you know, when we take a group of consultants out for dinner, I didn't even know this was a thing. It's so funny. <laughs> Some people will order two entrees. Eat one, take one home. That's not appropriate. That's just, I, I love the idea of providing food, nice food as perks to people. That's not an appropriate behavior, though. <laughs> and so there, there are a range of behaviors that when you're in this sort of new sort of experience work environment are not going to be appropriate. But most of that flexibility and decision-making needs to be on the team. And by the way, as a leader, if I'm going out on the limb for you and I'm going to the client and advocating for your work arrangement and you're on the more flexible side, I'm probably going to be expecting more from you. When you have more authority, when you have more autonomy, when you have more flexibility, there usually comes an accountability or responsibility overlaid on top of that, which nobody's talking about. So right now we're just giving people agency with no responsibility and that leads to misbehavior as well. So anyway, that's a whole nother podcast episode, but I do want to dig into some of those ideas with yeah, you. Yeah, I would love to talk to you at length about this. Let's at, do while, it. While it's, while it's on your mind, fresh on your mind, coming from your offsite, your account leader did very effectively, I thought, represent, represent to the EC some of the discussion and some of the statistics that he gathered, which were very telling. Yeah. And I thought that was excellent. The data is very helpful. We captured those specifically, so you can go and talk about them. Yeah, so I think yeah. it's I, I'm I'm riffing a little bit here, but I think it's interesting. So you're you are indexing on a couple of things, like the second layer of kind of tribe or group is the project, and there's another school of thought that that is the office. And those two things have been in conflict during this entire conversation. Which yeah. one are we indexing around? That's one. The other is at what level can an individual act with a certain amount of agency? Or I don't want to say 
can people be trusted? But that is often how it comes through with a set of, you know, how, how can, how much principle, how much principled thinking can a, can a set of people be, be given and trusted with? And maybe some of that relates to whether or not one is indexing on a small team that has a, a leader at a certain level versus a large office where the, the dilution of leadership is, is significant and yeah. leaves for a pretty significant margin of error. You know, that's an interesting point too, because so my 10 year anniversary is actually this month. And Congratulations. Thank you. I, I thought back to my very first client, which was 120 miles away, 120 miles round trip every day driving. Not exactly, had a, had a few red flags from like a, where the company was in their, like they were, going, they were going out of business, you know, those kind of things. And, and it was the best introduction to consulting, the best first client, the most like sort of foundational building for growth. All of those things, like I, I wouldn't change anything about the year and a half I spent there. If I had full agency at the time, I wouldn't have gone because hmm. I would have said, "I don't want to drive that far." Can you just put me over there in that like nice skyscraper? I know we have two clients over there. It's easier for me to drive. I can carpool with my wife. Like it's a good, and maybe that would have been right for another group of reasons. But having people smarter than you more wise than you, who have decades more experience than you, working to craft like your next project is is a, is like a perk. Like it's a benefit. Mm-hmm. And so this only breaks down when you have people who are in charge of your destiny that don't care about you, which I think is most places. And so that, that makes it a little bit more difficult, but mm-hmm. at least where we're, we're coming from, like there's a tremendous amount of thought put into Mm-hmm. And care where you might go, and so I, I don't know that I had ten years ago mm-hmm. the understanding of where I should be staffed to have a valuable opinion about it. Maybe other people do. I certainly didn't. I think what you're saying, if if people were honest, would ring true. It certainly rings true with me. At like how many years at the beginning of my my career of like you know just continually saying yes to things that were opportunities offered to me, even though. They were offered, but I was highly encouraged to say yes to them and finding that like without that, without those experiences, I didn't even know what to say no to. I didn't know enough about what I was good at or what experiences would be formative and what would be, uh, what would be key decision points for me later, positively or negatively, had I just opted to control every part of that narrative for X number of years. Yeah. Well, and, and I'll just maybe, my final opinion on this is, and this is probably not a popular opinion, and it's one of those things like, I think it's like gravity where you can pretend like it doesn't exist, but if you do, you just not, things are not going to go well for you. Nothing makes any sense, especially yeah, the scale. I, yeah. I am not aware of a single peak performer, role model, just slot in whoever you look up to right? Whether it's, you know, Lionel Messi or Nelson Mandela, right? Whoever. Frodo can be a fictional character. That the reason that you look up for them is in most part what they became after going through struggle. Hmm. And so to try to put you in a situation 
where you're not going to struggle robs you from your destiny to grow. And so I don't know how to communicate that without you thinking, I'm just trying to put you in this situation because I want to, you know, not have to worry about staffing or whatever. But trying to avoid struggle is not, that's not the point. It's not real. I, I really, I strongly agree with your very unpopular opinion. But I, I think there's a, there's a massive societal norm that is clashing up against that. Yeah. I, I mean, look at people you. who have lost their job, things like that, didn't wish it on the time. But how many people who had gotten laid off have gone to something better and said, oh, if that didn't happen, I wouldn't be here. Mm-hmm. I didn't like it at the time, Yeah, but I'm so much better off. And I think most, most struggles that way, especially professional struggle, mm-hmm. right? So I, I don't know. I think that's a thing we're going to have to, a reality like gravity we're going to have to deal with that we would rather did not exist. Yeah. And there might, there might be ways of messaging that effectively or finding the right person to message that, that we aren't yet, that we aren't kind of actualizing it thoroughly. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. This is good. We need, yeah, yeah so we need to. Maybe we'll need take a, a couple break episodes. Chat on this one. Yeah. And, and we'll dig into it next awesome. time, maybe. Cool, man. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. Great. Have a good week. Bye. Bye.